0: I do have to say, antibiotics are a great thing, and I have to thank my doctor, Dr. Shrub, publicly today. (laughs) There was no way I was going to miss ComNet. Um, Good morning, and I will use a phrase that Lena uses, what's up, family, or what's up, fam? This morning, I think we're in for a treat. Um, I am honored to be able to introduce Lena Waite and Joshua Johnson, who is a friend of the Bay and who is now a radio host um, in DC for 1A. So let's start with Lena. Lena is a true creator. Whether she is writing, producing, or acting, she is exemplary of what it is when we talk about the power of a woman. Last year, Lena made history as the first black woman to receive an Emmy Award for comedy writing for the series Master of None. And if you have not watched, I encourage you to watch Master of None. It's a masterpiece, and she also plays Denise. She's also the creator of the critically acclaimed Showtime series, The Shy. Do I have any Illinois natives here? Yeah? I can't claim Chicago, but 40 miles west of Aurora. And most recently, she starred in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Her upcoming projects include Twenties at at TBS and the film Queen and Slim, which I'm looking forward to. They call it kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde. She's also working on a horror anthology series Them for Amazon. And of course, she's doing a remake uh, with Holly Berry Boomerang, which is coming to BET. With a slate of projects across TV, film, and digital, Lena is changing the game. To quote director Ava DuVernay, Lena embodies what black artistic excellence is all about, changing the game by changing the narrative and centering us. When she says, you have the power to change your narrative, I believe her. She is a truth teller. She is a storyteller. She is a person who believes, quote, a microphone is more powerful than a grenade. She speaks truth to power. So on behalf of the San Francisco Foundation, please join me in welcoming to the Bay Area, Joshua Johnson and the extremely talented Lena Waith.
1: Right. Lena, welcome. Thank Thanks very man. much. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So my man in the spandex, y'all gonna have to explain that to me later. I was downstairs, I I saw him going down the stairs as I was coming up the stairs. I was like, I knew I overdressed for San Francisco. I do it every time. Thank y'all for making time for us for this conversation with Lena. We look forward to getting into some of your questions and thoughts as well. We'll get to as many as we can in just a moment. Before we dive in, I'm glad to bring you greetings from WAMU in Washington and NPR. We're so grateful. (laughs) that you invited us to be part of this event and to spend some time with you. Lena, how, how are you? How is life in Lena Waite's world these days?
2: Um, it's pretty busy, it's pretty busy. Um, but it's good, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's black, it's glorious, it's full of love. <clears throat> Can't complain.
1: Let me start with a simple question that might have a complex answer for, for you or for someone who kind of does what you do. And I'm actually gonna get rid of that pillow too, yeah. a little more. <laughs> there we go. So we can just kind of cool yeah. it out. There we go. What do you do for a living?
2: Um, I I make art, um, but I think I also um, I'm a person that documents the lives the lives of people of color, so that way. When we're gone, that no one will forget we were here.
1: How do you feel, how straight a path do you feel it was to get to the point where you are, where that's your definition of what you do for a living? Did you always have a beat on that, or did it kind of evolve over time?
2: Um, I think that I am a product of that storytelling. Um, I watched stories about people that look like me. as a young person in Chicago, trying to find myself or figure out what I meant to the world. And I think I only saw that by looking into a television that was sort of a reflection. And I came up at a time where a different world was on, Cosby Show, Family Matters, Fresh Prince. uh, But then I also watched old television shows like the Mary Tyler Moore Show or Maud um, on The Family, Good Times, and so, I always sort of knew everything I knew about human behavior through fictitious characters. Uh, And I think that really had a huge impact on me. So it was always this thing of wanting to become a master of who we are as human beings and then try to find some sort of truth in that that everyone can relate to. So that is sort of like the path I began, watching stories and then wanting to tell my own.
1: Did you, when you were watching TV, Because I think you and I grew up with a lot of the same shows. Mm -hmm. Did you look at those shows and say, I identify with that, that's my life? Or did you look at those shows and feel kind of the distance between that fantasy and your reality?
2: Um, I mean, I think I looked at them... Because, like, here's the thing. The Cosby Show didn't reflect where I lived or how I lived, but it reflected who we are. Like, my family, there was a lot of love, there was a lot of respect. Uh, there was a lot of appreciation for the elders. So even though it wasn't who, it wasn't, it, the specifics weren't the same, but the feeling was, and I understood how powerful that was to be sitting in a space, uh, you know, being raised by a single parent, living with my grandmother, and 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 I never felt disconnected to the world in which I lived, but I felt very important <clears throat> when I watched that show because I knew so many other people were watching it, and they looked like me, and it made me feel less invisible.
1: You talk in, you've talked about living on Chicago South Side until you were 12, mm-hmm. and then your mother moving you to Evanston, which mm-hmm. is a suburb of Chicago, yeah. which you have described in one profile as being like an effing Benetton ad. You didn't mm-hmm. say effing, but
2: <clears throat> yeah.
1: you know, this is a family conference, so I'll say uh-huh. effing. What was that transition like for you as a preteen, going from the south? I think about, uh, it almost makes me think about that show, The Boondocks, where you have Mm -hmm. these two characters who are kind of plucked out of one environment, dropped in another one, Uh and expected to kind of become part of that space when they're just not kind of wired for it. But what was it like for you? I mean,
2: it wasn't really um, a huge shock for me, I think because I just very early on knew how to step into a space and either own it, or um, step into the space and be a part of it. And I was very blessed in that way. I think I was always a bit of a ham. Maybe it came from watching so much movies and TVs. A TV, I I always really knew how to be the life of the party and how to entertain. And so I never really had an issue stepping into a space, but it was unique to me because like, I didn't know what a stay at home mom was until I was around white people Um, and because, I remember going to a student's house and her mom was there, and I was like, "What's your mom doing here?" Like, "Where did she go home?" <laughs> um, So uh, that kind of stuff exposed me to different things and like people and how other people live, and I think that is always important because that affects that. Then gives me this broader scope, so that way, you know, it's it's the it's the difference between Spike Lee and Tyler Perry. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's. If you only see one thing and know one thing, then that is going to be what you spit out. But because I was exposed to so many different things, uh, just naturally, and the other things I wanted to search or find or become obsessed with, like it kind of helped. It helped the way I look at the world.
1: Did you ever feel like you had to code switch?
2: Well, all Black people are bilingual. I mean, but I think that I think that I actually don't or I think that was a thing that I really didn't adopt because I realized that who I was was more fascinating than me making a room full of white people comfortable. So me speaking the way I speak or walking the way I walk or being who I am actually got me more attention than me trying to blend or um, assimilate.
1: We got a number of questions from some of the folks who are here for the conference who submitted questions in advance. We'll get to as many of them as we can, and we'll get to some Q&A with you now, Uh, a little bit bit later in the program today. Uh, One person wrote, growing up in Chicago has clearly influenced your work, obviously evidenced by your hit show, The Shy. Chicago may be the most stereotyped city in America right now. How have you used representation to paint a different picture?
2: Well, to me, I, I, when I sat down to write it, it really, it really um, <clears throat> was just this desire to tell a very raw and uncut and uh, just human story about the people that live there and go to work every day and are raising kids and trying to get into heaven. So, I really didn't sit down with any other intention than that. It was I just I. I felt like people were talking about the city or writing about it in a way it was really from a foreigner's perspective and being someone that obviously is from there and that's the the first home I ever knew. I just know the people and I know how salt of the earth they are. I know how hardworking they are. I know how conflicted they can be sometimes because the city can be tough. And so for me, I just wanted to tell their story. And I always say, I don't, Care about the police. If there's ever a police story in there, it's because it's sort of forced in. But I care about those who are being policed. I don't care about the system. I care about the people the system affects. I think that's always where I've come from, and I think that's really the place I wanted to to start with the with the show. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of the character names are people directly from my life. Like, I mean, I have an uncle, Ronnie. My mother's name is Laverne. Uh, Her first name, her first first name is Ethel. Uh, uh, I knew a kid you know, named Brandon, uh, also grew up with a kid named Kugi whose name we still don't know. Um, <laughs> and so I just, uh, I, I really put so much of, and then also my uncle Ronnie dated a chick named Tracy, like I really put myself in it. And I was like, if they can see um, sort of these sprinkles of, of our blackness and our humanness, that they will see that we are Um, not the monsters in which people make us out to be.
1: Could I ask you to circle back to something you said earlier? At least two people who are listening right now have kind of tweeted and quoted you on talking about wanting to document the lives of people of color so that people will remember us after we're all long gone.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: How do you view that? Like, what is it that is, what do you see in terms of us all being long gone? Is that what you think that we as a people are kind of inexorably heading towards? Can you elaborate on that?
2: Well, here's the deal: James Baldwin wrote about us, Lorraine Hansberry wrote about us, and he is gone, she is gone, Martin is gone, Malcolm is gone, and they wrote about that time and those themselves and the people that were leading the charge uh, of change. And they don't walk amongst us anymore, but their their spirit and their work and their words do. I mean, Barry Jenkins' new movie, like Bill Street Guitar, I mean, James Baldwin is still in the culture because he wrote about himself. He wrote about the people that lived across the street from him. He wrote about, uh, you know, the women of the street, on, you know, while he was living in Harlem, like Lorraine Hansberry wrote the quintessential story of us. And, uh, and, she, you know, she lived, I mean, she died, I mean, she was around, I think, my age when she, when she left us. Uh, and, um, and so, she will never be forgotten, even though her body is now one with the earth. Her story is one that will live on forever and ever and ever because people will keep telling it, people will keep talking about it. But she didn't write that, I think, for her own <clears throat> glory. I don't think she sat in front of a, a typewriter chain smoking cigarettes thinking, I want to be remembered. She wanted us to be remembered. She she wanted to make sure that people understood what it meant to be black and what it meant to want to be an elephant and not an ant. She knew, but yet the world keeps telling you you're an ant, but you know you're an elephant. And I think, you know, know, Sidney Poitier's performance will always be haunting because it always is the story of a black male to want to be a king, um, but to be treated like a peasant. And, uh, but not only to want to be a king, but to be a king and to be treated like a peasant. And I think that's what I mean. It's like, I'm not trying to be, you know, something larger than life person. We're all, if we all stand in front of the ocean, we'll feel small. We're made up of the same stuff. It's just my job to document our lives.
1: What got you into that kind of documentary work in a more formal way? Was there a point at which you realized that writing could be your vehicle? Was there someone who encouraged you to do that? A class, a mentor, a moment that you can point to? Well,
2: no. I think we all are born with gifts. I think everybody has a gift. Um, and either you can suppress it or you can embrace it. So, this was the gift that God put inside of me when I was in my mother's womb, and I didn't suppress it.
1: At what point, I guess what I'm getting at is, was there a point at which it kind of clicked for you, like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? No,
2: I think I'm one of those people where uh, I didn't know how to be anything other than myself. Um, and I think from a very early age, I just enjoyed watching TV and like reading and, and writing and telling stories, either verbally or writing them down. But I uh, I think it's interesting because I've seen the Quincy Jones documentary uh, on Netflix like three times at this point and uh, my friend Rashida, I think did a beautiful job. Yeah, it's, uh, it's excellent. It's great. Uh, there's something he talks about like sitting at a piano for the first time at a very young, young, young age, No no piano, you know, lessons, no teacher. Um, and he kind of said, oh, th- here it is. This, is. this is the thing I'm supposed to do. And I think even when I was in fifth grade, um, Mrs. Tarbunas said, uh, I look forward to reading your papers every re- week because you write the way you speak. And um, obviously I remembered that and just sort of thinking, hmm, okay. But again, I just sort of never thought, well, should I try to make this a job, or what's the plan B? It was always, oh, this is the gift God gave me, so uh, let's go.
1: Let's get to a few more questions from some of the folks here at ComNet. Yeah. With regard to your work in television, Laura Mm -hmm. Nash from the Northwest Health Foundation asks, from your perspective, what is television's role in reinforcing and or challenging common narratives? And she gives some examples of hardworking individuals pulling themselves up by the bootstraps versus the so-called welfare queen taking advantage of America's taxpayers. How does television reinforce some of America's favorite narratives or perhaps myths and stereotypes?
2: Um, Well, it's not about... Well, here's the thing. This is what I will say. We've never had a black person run a major studio, right? in the town of Hollywood. This never happened. We've had a black person run the country. We never had a black person run a major motion picture studio. Um, <clears throat> it's true, never had a black bachelor. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, I believe that a microphone is more powerful than a grenade. It just is. You have so much power. Um, with that. So I think there's a couple things. I mean, there is money to be made in telling and enforcing common narratives. But we can't necessarily blame other people for that because the truth is that sometimes, say, black people enjoy a a, a common black narrative. You know, there's the whole empire built around that where it's sort of like almost, uh, you know, Minstrelsy has sort of changed its face, but it still exists, and, um, and it's not just you know that everybody enjoys that. You know, there's a part of people that like that. So you can't what the the color that matters most in Hollywood is green. <clears throat> so if the common narratives continue to make money or uh, bring viewership, then it'll always exist. Now, there's more uncommon narratives that are happening, like Atlanta, or uh, Random Acts of Flyness, uh, Dear White People, Get Out, Moonlight. Um, the more people show up for those things and those narratives, uh, then the more, and I think people will have, I think it, it's starting to happen, the shift is starting to, to turn. But, but I also think both will exist. You can have, you know, foie gras on a Wednesday, and you can also have McDonald's on a Friday. It's just a matter of, you know. But I don't think it's anyone's job. I really kind of, I don't know if I believe in that. I think we as artists, you know, put our work into the world, and we have no power over how it's received.
1: Let me dig a little bit deeper into what you just said in terms of there having been a black president but never a black studio executive.
2: Uh Studio head. Studio head,
1: yes, studio head. There have been black studio executives, for Uh sure. Dig deeper into that on a practical level. So suppose that I, you know, Joshua Johnson, became the head of, you know, whatever studio, Mm -hmm. Sony or Paramount or Fox Mm -hmm, or whatever. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Give me some practical examples from your work of what difference that would make. When someone like you comes in and says, hey, I got this project, this is what I want to do, and this is how I want it done. What are some of the levers that I, as a studio head, get to pull as a black studio head that make a difference for a creator, for a storyteller of color? Give me a few examples.
2: Well... The truth is, is like I mean I think it might be too hypothetical, but because uh, at the end of the day, I can walk into a white studio head's office and convince him to sell something because I represent a brand. I'm a commodity, so that's not I think where it needs to go. It's more about someone who doesn't have a brand, someone who is very talented and, and has a lot of potential but wasn't on the cover of Vanity Fair. Like, it's, it's about getting that person into the room because buying something from me don't get you no brownie points. Because um, <clears throat> that's like going, that worked, okay, let's hear it, let's do it again. Like, okay. It's more about someone who uh, walks through the world with a different perspective and someone who's willing to take risks and someone who is willing to roll up their sleeves and, and look for uh, a piece of talent that, uh, hasn't really been discovered yet, that needs to be nurtured. And, and look, at the end of the day, you know every brother ain't a brother. So having Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court doesn't serve um, <clears throat> any of us. So it's, it's more about who is the studio head? What, what are their intentions? What do they want to do? because I do think sometimes they can place us in positions to keep us complacent. Um, So it really is more about making sure whoever that person is, when the day comes, that'll be a glorious day, but I hope to make sure that that person is Thurgood and not Clarence.
1: How much more do you think that Hollywood is mindful in a practical sense of the need to portray diversity on screen. I mean, this year we've had a few big hit movies with all <coughs> or mostly uh-huh. you know, diverse casts. Uh-huh. Some of them have been big budget films like uh-huh. Black Panther and right. Crazy, what, Crazy Rich Asians and so yeah, on. Yeah. And those are
2: big hits. at both premieres, it was great.
1: Uh, yeah, right, and we, we <laughs> I think food we did. The was
2: amazing at both parties.
1: I bet, I bet. I think we did both of those movies on 1A for the movie club as well. But the, the question always comes up whether or not this is actually a sign of the times, or whether this is kind of too noteworthy, and then you have Moonlight mm. literally taking the Best Picture Oscar away from La La Land, like, mm. like literally.
2: As it should, I don't know, I don't know. Right. I love Damien, I love, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah. And I
1: think one of the questions that keeps coming up for people who comment on our program is whether this means we have, for lack of a better word, arrived. Like, where we are in the struggle, if you have Black Panther that does so well and Crazy Mm -hmm. Rich Asians that does so well, and Moonlight that wins the Academy Award for Best Picture of the Year, Mm -hmm. like, roll the credits, and we all live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Right?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Look, um, (laughs) here's the thing. Um, I think when Empire happened, uh, it, was a tr- it was a fad. When Atlanta happens, we're in vogue. I think when Get Out happens, we are the culture. So, but here's the truth, we've always been the culture. It's just that um, our bodies are just being used for a profit. And that's something that we are very familiar with. Uh, but I think that the difference now, in my opinion, is that the industry has recognized that layered, complex stories about people who happen to be people of color are profitable and prestigious. Those are everybody's favorite two P's because um, you want box office, but you also want awards. So. That's what Get Out represents in one perfect nutshell. Um, and, uh, and Barry Jenkins represents that prestigious thing you know, because you know, it's still tough to get folks to come out and see films like Moonlight just because the palettes aren't as sophisticated as they could be. But what has happened is that somebody can duplicate Empire. That's no shade to Empire, I'm just saying. It's, you can take that and go. Black folks, dancing, singing, drugs, drama. You can duplicate you know, something like power, or you can say, okay, drug kingpin, on his wife, got the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You can't duplicate Atlanta. You can't duplicate random acts of blindness. You really can't duplicate Get Out, because you don't have Get Out without Jordan Peele. You don't have Atlanta without the vision of, of Donald Glover. You don't have Master of None without Aziz and Allen deciding to do something that hasn't been done before. So now what the industry realizes is, oh, so we gotta go to the artist. We gotta go find a Jordan Peele. We gotta go find a Ryan Coogler. We gotta go find a Lena Waithe. And that now has put the power in our hands because they finally understand that no one can do what I can do. You can't duplicate me. I'm gonna give you something unique and special because I'm an artist, this is what I do. And you now have more artists um, and I'm really honored to be in this beautiful new black renaissance that we're living in. Uh, Because it's true, I sometimes get weirded out. When I was like, Donald did like a thing, he was like, I invited him to a screening of a Whitney's screening, um, uh, just for him to look at it. And and so, and it was like, you know, I invited some folks, Tracy Ellis Ross was there, Lee Daniels was there, Donald had come, and so I was talking to Donald and uh, and he was like, Yo, Lee, you know, I wanna just sort of get us together and just have a, a salon and just I'll just kinda gather and talk. And I was like, Okay. And so he did, and it's like and it's like it's like me and him and Janelle Monet and Laverne Cox and Justin Simeon and Rashida Jones and Tracy and Kenya Barris and all of us in one space, sort of talking about, you know, and Issa and everybody just sort of talking about work and art and, and, and what we wanna be and, and uh, what our goals are and things like that. What I realized is one, I feel very blessed to be a part of this, this amazing dynamic group of people, uh, but also feel blessed that we are not afraid to gather and have conversations and support each other But I also realized is that this can't be duplicated. You can't you can't fake what we do. You can't try to take it and and sell it. You know the generic version. They gotta come to the source. And my goal is because as I'm in the forefront, or people see me on TV or whatever, um, or because I have an Emmy or whatever that means, is like my mission is to take the the spotlight and to shed it on those artists who people don't know yet, um, who are just as talented, just as gifted, and just as amazing. You just have yet to find out their name because they haven't had an opportunity to put their work on TV or in movies. And I think my biggest mission is to expand the club. Because right now it is a small, you can fit us all into one apartment, (laughs) obviously. Um, So my mission is that you get a mansion and we still need more room. Because that's how many of us out here is brilliant and talented. This is the opportunity. That's my long-winded answer to that question.
1: No, it's a good answer. It's a good answer. And it kind of puts a fine point on the challenge, I think, for me anyway, it Mm. kind of puts a fine point on the challenge of getting studios to hear and see and validate people like you because part of the underpinning of the business of movies, of television, of media, is being mass-producible. Is yeah. you have to be able to create create something and then put it out in as many different forms as possible without having to go start the hunt all over again.
2: Right, and look, they also wanna make money and they wanna be cool. Right. We, we make things cool and we make, we make people money. Let me get to
1: a few more of your questions before we move the mics around in the audience and get to oh, some cool. of your questions here in the hall. One member of our audience wrote, what was one of the best pieces of advice you got as a writer? Do you think your writing improved by being around people and observing them, or do you rely more on your imagination than real life?
2: Um, Best, I mean, there's so much advice you get, I mean, as a writer, I mean, Gina prince bythewood told me to be great. She'll always be great. Just be great, be great, be great. And I think I took that and said, I want it to be phenomenal. Uh, and so what does that mean? LaGle. clarify
1: that, what, what does it mean to be phenomenal?
2: Um, to be... It's, it's basically I'm saying I don't wanna pick up a basketball if I'm not gonna be Michael Jordan.
1: How so. do you get to be Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan talks frequently about how many free throws he missed to become Michael
2: Jordan. Well, here's the deal. like Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan because there was a gift that he got that he didn't suppress, and he pours all of his soul and all of his everything and all of his being into it in spite of other things. And I think it's like, I don't wanna paint if I'm not gonna be Picasso. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna do it unless I'm gonna be the best that ever did it. That's just the thing for me. Otherwise, what's the point? Because it's too much sacrifice. It's too much time away from my fiance. It's too many months that go by where I don't speak to my mother. There's too many times where I don't get to hang out with my friends. It's like, what the fuck am I doing that for? If I'm not going to leave behind a legacy that is gonna hold up my people uh, in a way in which they are worthy. So you just, you here's, here's another thing I was thinking. I went to, I was very blessed. I got invited to the On The Run Tour, the second one. I got, you know, I was very lucky to get that invite. I went, I had a phenomenal time, and I realized one thing. I said, there's a lot of people in the audience. And then you got Beyonce, on stage, and Jay-Z, obviously. You got these guys (laughs) on stage, right? And you can't have one without the other. You can't have, if there's no, people have to be in the audience. Everybody can't be Beyonce. If the world were full of Beyonce's, it would be a little (laughs) unbalanced. So, but then also imagine, so but there's an element of the audience believing that is the person on the stage is the most significant being here. But imagine Beyonce performing with no audience. You see what I'm saying? Either you're gonna be Beyonce or you're gonna be in the audience. But both is, are necessary to the process. And there's nothing wrong with being in the audience. But you gotta decide. Cause at some point, Beyonce was like, I'm not gonna be in the audience. But you don't have a concert without all those people that make up the audience. So, I guess I don't wanna be in the audience.
1: I don't mean to psychoanalyze you, but as you were telling, <laughs> no, 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 really, I, I,
2: I, I just, just a thought I had, I was like, you, this exists. Like, you, it's a, you have to have both. Well, there's you, something... you can't have a lead singer without backup singers. But they both serve a very significant purpose.
1: There's to, something to the as, in, in the way that you gave that example, the way that you told that story, just sitting here kind of four feet away from you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: everything in your body language said, I don't want to live in the audience. Hmm there is something so anathema to you about being consigned to the audience and not having a chance to be Beyonce. It was kind of, it kind of washed all over you as mm. you were describing that. Am I reading your own?
2: No, I just, I, I, no, not at all. And I just think that I don't know, I don't know what that is. I don't. Um, and I think I'm always trying to figure that out and explore that. And I think that's also a part of what makes me who I am. Because there are things that I have, I know that I have thoughts that most people don't. And that's okay. But I gotta own that and I gotta sit in that. But that's why this is what I I do for a living. Because I sit and think about this kind of shit all the time. (laughs) Um, But that's my job though, I have to be an observer. I have to think about these things. I have to study human behavior. You know, um, I'm mindful of things. Uh, I'm a photographer without a camera. I just use a laptop.
1: We'll get to some of your questions in just a moment. Before we do, I, I have a few more things I want to ask you before sure. we open it up to Q&A. I have one rule for whenever I do Q&A at any event, and my rule is to please be generous with our time. There are plenty of people here with plenty of life experiences and plenty of insights to share, and I want to make sure we have as much time to get to as many of them as possible. So if you are generous in the way that you compose your questions, then we can get as many questions answered as possible in the time that we have with Lena.
2: And I'll cool? keep my answers short and sweet. Cool. So I can get to as many views as possible. Excellent,
1: excellent. Before we get to some questions from here at the theater, uh, today is National Coming Out Day, yeah, and I Yeah, well,
2: I haven't to, tweeted or po- posted anything yet, but I will. Yeah, and I, well, I wanted to ask you... I'm the most... I'd be, I, mean, like, I, I really want to say, like, I know I'm gonna always be associated with coming out. Always. Well, that's kind of what I wanted
1: to ask you about, because there's, there's, there's an aspect of storytelling to one's own coming out. You mm-hmm. know, you're telling your own story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like LGBT people, like you and I, kind of experience coming out like being at a pride parade, it's one thing to show up, but then you have to decide what float beat you're gonna walk with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Like, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm a lesbian. It's another thing to say, I wanna ride with the dykes on bikes. Like, that's a whole other decision-making process. Because it reveals, it's like another chapter to your coming out story. What do you think it takes to work through those chapters? How have you worked through those for yourself?
2: I mean, well, a couple of things as I ponder it. Um just the whole idea of National Coming Out Day. It's interesting because I saw someone's post is that you, know, you shouldn't necessarily push people to come out because everyone has a different experience. Um, and obviously some people are just very, you know, really wanna wear like a badge of honor. It's like, yeah, I came out eight years ago or I came out today or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, my thought as I was thinking this morning, as I was like realizing there was National Coming Out Day, uh, and I thought, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna just you know post something or say something." But I remember I thought, "Oh, okay, that's where I've come to. I want us to live in a world where no one has to necessarily come out because <laughs> they were raised in a home where they determined, not determined, but they told their parents what their gender was and not a gender reveal party can do that. Um, they understood that what it means to be non-bi- non-binary or genderqueer or asexual or uh, gay, lesbian, trans or whatever it may be, uh, that they can say that at the age in which they discover it, which is usually you know, very young. So it's not them even coming out, it's them clarifying who they are. And I believe children should be able to say who they are just as easily as they can tell you what their favorite color is or what they like to watch on TV or uh, what their favorite you know, song is right now. I think that to me is really the goal because the fact that people, when you don't do something, it's because you're afraid of it. So if it takes someone a long time to come out, it's because they fear what could happen and I think that we still have a few more generations until we get to this, you know, oasis. But I believe that that is really the mission, is to continue to educate people about what it means to be um, othered or queer. But that's a big thing too, in terms of like chapters and floats and things like that. I said, when I was uh, very blessed to win a, uh, a, an award from GLAAD for my episode uh, Thanksgiving, I, I said to the room that I don't want us to divvy up. you know I don't want us to sit at different lunch tables. At the end of the day, we're all queer, so we're all under one umbrella and, um, and we may live differently or identify differently or walk in different worlds, but we all have something in common. We all identify as some form of queerness, and that to me is one big group and one big family, and I don't wanna separate myself by saying, oh, I'm a masculine presenting African-American lesbian. It's like, yeah, that's fine, but at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm different. And you're different. I mean, technically we're all kind of queer if you think about it, but. um, (laughs) But I just don't wanna separate myself. And I'm proud of those things. I'm proud of who I am and how I present. But, you know, and those things just come, you know, I don't, you just kind of figure out your swag and what you wanna do and how you wanna walk, but, so I don't know if I, that's just sort of been my journey, just kind of being myself, and this is a representation of, like, myself.
1: Since, before we start moving mics around to get Mm -hmm. to some of your questions, you use that word queer, Mm -hmm. and since we're dealing with communications professionals, I wonder how you view the value of terminology, I mean, I know, for example, I know some black gay men who refuse to call themselves gay because they associate being gay with a kind of predominantly white subculture. They'll call Mm -hmm. themselves same-gender loving, Mm -hmm. but they won't use the word gay. Mm -hmm. And I know some gay people who won't use the word queer because it just, it's got this kind of like a, it reminds them of being back on the schoolyard and it just feels like an inherently pejorative word. I'm not knocking your definition, but I I hear so many different ways of the, the way that people embrace and identify with terminology, with language, especially for people on our program who are like, I don't know what word to use. I don't know what these terms mean. Like whenever we do a show about trans issues, I always make the point of defining what the word cisgender is
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and explaining explaining what that concept is so people begin to identify with what these different words are. It feels Mm -hmm. like terminology is kind of a frontier, particularly for the wider culture, learning how to deal with people who aren't. Of the mainstream
2: i mean i think the reason why i use the word queer is because it just encapsulates like everything that i think because here's the deal: I, I just i feel like when you get too bogged down in that then it makes it difficult for others to want to approach or communicate or talk now people can identify however they choose i think my biggest thing is again we're all we're all the same. So like let's just kinda create like a word where we all can kinda be under the umbrella rather than now that's not to belittle people's experiences or how everyone has a very different one because I have a very different experience, say hey, from Lavron Cox. But we still the same bitch at the end of the day. <laughs> like, we still go through a lot of the same shit. She told me like her mom was like a reaction was a lot like mine and Thanksgiving. So it's like we all have the same shit. Like I don't wanna like like we're all the same, man. We're all the same. Let's move some mics
1: around and get to some of your questions. Where are the people? Yes, let us you raise I'm the saying, house you lights. i bump it
2: up just because I'm like, I can't see yes. anything. Let there be. Or anyone. And behold, there was. This, this Let's see, see where right are our here.
1: runners with the microphones? There's one, and where's our other runner? And there's one. If you would please. Uh, first of all, yeah, when you get the mic, struggle, if you would just wave your hand. It's still a struggle for me to see you. There you because are.
2: Because it is light. Exactly.
1: If you would just introduce yourself, your yep. name, the organization that you're with, and then your generous worded question. Can't see you, but I feel you. Question.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, good to see you. My name is Sylvia Ewing. I'm from Chicago. Dope. So no surprise, I have the mic first.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I uh, thank you for taking our mind off of Crazy Kanye. I said it. But what I'd <laughs> like to know is... Where do you see you in a few years? Your perspective is so uh, thoughtful, amazing. You are representing the Chicago that we know that gets overlooked and you and Common and Chance and other people are doing that. Where do you see you in 10 years?
2: And thank you. Thank you. Um, You know, it's so interesting. Um, I gotta ask God that. Truly. Um, because I didn't see myself here five years ago. Uh, and there really are, I mean, you really do gotta take things as they come. Um, Cause I definitely wouldn't have thought I'd be in a Steven Spielberg movie. I, I didn't write, Emmy wasn't necessarily on my vision board. And uh, <laughs> um, didn't think I'd be doing the, the boomerang version of the TV show with Halle Berry, you know, producing alongside with me. So. I, I, the opportunities, you know, come and I, I want to take advantage of as many of them as I possibly can. But truthfully, for my hope, my hope is I will have a production company that can rival Plan B. Um I hope to uh not be singing for my supper as much. And um and I hope to, you know, but I think you know I can't help but uh include my personal life in that. I hope to uh have a kid that knows who they are and knows from which they, where they come and uh, be living in the house that I'm renovating right now with my, uh, who will be my wife then and no longer my fiance. And, um, and I hope that we'll continue to grow together and stand next to each other and uh, continue to recommit to each other every day. Um, and uh, yeah, and I hope to be more in love with her than I am right now. So that's what I hope to be
1: and just to clarify, yeah. Plan B, that's Brad Pitt's production company. That's it the is. company that did World War Z.
2: Yeah, they also did 12 Years a Slave. So they also years did of Moonlight. And I really appreciate what those guys are doing over there. And I think I just wanna, you know, build a building next to them. Or when folks come in, they see uh, my black ass and, uh, <laughs> and my my amazing exec, Rishi Rajani, um, uh, who is, you know, I don't know, me and you know, the Asian community, man, we like, I don't know, we vibe. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, um. Yeah, yeah, and who knows, maybe another season of Master of None will have happened then. I don't know, we'll see what happens. I've been, Aziz and I have been talking a little bit. Who's got the mic? Yeah, man, let's do it. you I'm, got I'm the be mic. Fa- I'm huh. gonna be faster, I'm gonna be faster. Go ahead, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm
1: Nicole Nerulias Gupte so. from Seattle, so I have the microphone second. Yeah. <laughs> I would really like to hear about your thoughts on when a community is fighting for representation, and you have people who have been held up as representatives, like a Bill Cosby, like a Kanye West, um, what does it mean when they behave in a way that's not representative for the community? Nicole, before you sit down, what organization are you with? I'm a consultant. You're a consultant. Were there any, was there any community in particular that was on your mind as you asked this question, or are you just asking more generally? I think generally when you're in a community that you're, you're not in the majority representation.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lena? Um, and what it happens when they do when someone does something like this doesn't reflect us? I mean, look um, no group of people is immune to doing immoral things. Immorality is something that exists in every person and uh and I think that's a very interesting thing because it's like, you know, what happens when Woody Allen or Roman Polanski does something, you know what I'm saying? Because there are more of them than us that it makes it easier to forget. Uh, look, the, the Bill Cosby thing is, is very, is really difficult, it's almost like Here's here's the deal. Here's what I'll say. Heathcliff Huxtable was the only father I've ever known. So, because my own father wasn't there as or as present as he could have been, and he died suddenly when I was 14. So, I think sometimes people forget the how much an image can do for a group of people who don't see themselves. So, so it's almost like a death, or again, I lost another father, again. Uh, but, then there, but there's also this other thing, too, that we create the heroes in which we desire. We create them. Bill Cosby is, is skin and bones. He's made up the same stuff as we are. Uh, And sometimes we can forget that. Because we're like, no, you're special. There's something about you. But when you put, I said something also recently too, when you make someone a hero long enough, they get bored with being a hero and become a villain. And I think that it's, I don't, there's a thing about wanting to worship, you know, other people. It's not natural. It isn't. Um, And there's a thing that I've been thinking about, I'm actually wearing this, uh, this jacket, right, like we shot the pilot for 20s, hopefully it goes to series, we'll see what happens. Had a phenomenal team, production design found this jacket online, it, flew, it was all the way to some, like Sweden or something, and, and I watched the Whitney doc again and I saw that Robin was wearing this jacket. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly this one, but it was a Whitney Houston tour jacket. The character wears it in the pilot, you'll see it, but I say this to say, people said in the documentary a lot, and this is the thing I knew a lot, too, about Whitney Houston, is that she was sleep all the time. She would always be, whenever she had a free moment, every time she was sleep, 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 sleep. I thought about this morning as well. I said, I think the reason why she slept so much is because she was so exhausted from being worshiped. When I walk out into the world, there's a, I experience it differently than you. Because when I walk out into the world, I belong to you in a way. I don't get to live like everybody else. There's an exchange of energy that is unbalanced. We are getting the energy from all of you, right? But I have to pour out more energy so that way all of y'all can get a piece of me. So So that's why before I come out here, I have to do this. And when I leave, I have to refill my cup because I'm giving out more of myself, more of my energy um, than most people should. Now imagine this times 10, this times millions. You're not like everybody else, but you are. So the shit about Kanye or Bill or whatever, I, I have an understanding of like how these motherfuckers can go like crazy. Now Bill is different. Like that, is like a, that is like a fucking criminal, that's, crimin- that's criminality. Right. But I think, whether he was a celebrity or not, that that was still in him to do that. So his celebrity don't give him no forgiveness for my black ass. It's wrong. Kanye, the crazy shit that, that's going on, that's, I think, of him not knowing how to refill his cup. But he also, too, not to get too deep, I think he also has a very different perspective because when you go from being, from, a regular, normal person to not, you have a very different perspective of the world. Because if one day you're not famous, the next day you are, you see the difference in how people treat you. Right. So there's almost a distrust of everyone around you. Because like you didn't care about me yesterday, but now that I'm known, I got some money, and you do. So you're looking at everybody like this, like what, who can I trust, who can I believe? even in your own house. You're looking at your wife like, why did you marry me again? (laughs) Because I'm Kanye? Because I'm black? Because you wanted to add to your followers? Who knows? And that's somebody he lay down with every night. He don't know who to trust. So that's just a long-winded answer about that. But I just don't think people should worship people, but that's not happening anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and uh, before we get to the next question, which is where?
2: And I am to try to keep it short. I do want to get some okay. more in here, I'm sorry. That's okay.
1: I'll, I'll try to be a little more judicious about interrupting, yeah. but to the point that you made about Bill Cosby versus Cliff Huxtable, it reminded me of an a, a article that Wesley Morris wrote in the New York Times. The first sentence from the column is, if a sexual predator wanted to come up with a smokescreen for his ghastly conquests, he couldn't do better than Cliff Huxtable. That's real. Yeah. Let's get to the next question. Hi, introduce yourself and what's on your mind?
2: Hi.
0: My name is Lauren Applebaum, and I'm the communications director at RespectAbility. We're based outside of Washington, D.C. And our focus is on advancing opportunities for people with disabilities. So what I'd love to learn from you is how can those of us with disabilities who are trying to advocate for more accurate, positive portrayals of people with disabilities in TV and film learn from how much you've been able to advance for people of color. And I'd also like to point out that the disability market, according to Nielsen, is worth one trillion dollars. So there is a money angle, which I know is important for the industry. So, But how do we just go about learning from you and advancing those opportunities?
2: Uh, thank you for the question. I mean, the first thing I would do is say to take positive out of it. I think that's really, there's nothing I hate more than someone saying positive black images. And look, it's funny. I'll take the jacket off a little bit. This is, if you, I don't know if y'all can see, uh, but this is a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time called Menace Society. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine gifted this to me because he knows me very well. He got one for me and my lady. <laughs> um, this is a scene in which, *A Menace to Society, those who aren't familiar, one you should rent it and get familiar. It's really a, show, it's a movie about, uh, the title is actually really great and that it basically looks at like how black men are a menace to society. And some of these men in the movie are a menace to their society. Um, And it tries to capture why they feel that they have no other option but to be that. They're truly a menace to themselves, honestly. But anyway, there's a character, Old Dog, who the narrator Kane, who sells cocaine, um, describes as America's nightmare, because he's young, he's black, and doesn't give a fuck. And this gentleman is a crackhead and he's begging him to sell him some drugs, but he has no money. Somebody can look at that and go, well, that's forcing a stereotype. That's a common narrative. But here's the truth. This exists in our world. And just because it's not fun to look at it doesn't mean that they aren't valid images of us. If you only look at the good parts of a group of people, you are doing them a disservice. Equality is not just my black ass being the hero, but my black ass having the ability to play the villain as well. That's when the playing field is leveled. Michael B. Jordan's character is just as significant as Chadwick Boseman, as as being Black Panther. Both are important. So, to me, to show people who live with disabilities, is to not show them always being nice, good, and earnest, pleasant that belittles that group of people. Uh, so, and I believe that, and, and I know the, the, the WGA, the, our, our writers' guild, has, we all have different you know, meetings, like women, black writers, Latino writers, but there's also a group for writers who live with disabilities. And, um, and, uh, and, and sometimes they come to the black writers' meetings, sometimes we go to there, sometimes we try to intermingle, because uh, we all are othered in the world and in the business, and to me, it's about that, that group of people writing about their experiences, writing about their narrative. And also too, or a person who, isn't, who does not live with a disability uh, can write about it, but then they better have someone who does sitting right next to them as they work on the script. And I think that is when true change happens, is when someone is empowered to tell their own narrative. And, and that will happen because somebody's gonna tell the story and, 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 and then other people will feel empowered to tell their story and so on and so on and so on and so on. And there's actually something, speaking of which is very interesting, I, I, we haven't done it yet, but I saw an ad this young uh, African-American guy who wrote this sort of comic book about superheroes who have disabilities and how their disabilities help them save the world. And so I hit my exec and I was like, let's try to meet this guy and talk to him because that was something that, even though obviously I, I'm an able-bodied person, but I was like, that's phenomenal. That's how I think, that the things that make us othered make us dope. Yeah. So, anyway. I'm gonna keep them shorter. Give me like three more questions. Can we got time? Can we yeah, get like a couple we'll, more? We'll make them happen. On, we'll quick, see if we quick, get, quick, where's like now? Let's Where's, do it. But I do to, have to go. I gotta get mic- on a fucking plane. The mic. <laughs> we
1: we <laughs> will not let you be late to SFO. L- Let's get to another question. Where is the- like Just throw okay. the mic. Can throw
2: you ask a question mic. super if fast and we'll get your... Quick, Alina. quick.
0: Right. Um, hey. I'm name from the African-American bon, Museum. Boom, boom,
2: boom, boom, um, got it. And I
0: just wanted to know, how do you take up space um, as you walk into all of these different rooms, um, and access to show up as yourself every day?
2: How? Yes. I don't know any other way to be, my love. I just do it. But also too, I think it's like, that's like, how do you fall in love? You know what I'm saying? Like You become the person you become. And I'm from Chicago. You know, I got a single parent, so you resourceful. I had a grandmother from the South, you know what I'm saying? Like who, who like, get out of the South when she was 14. I come from a long line of people who don't give a shit. And I'm just like, <laughs> let's go. I don't know. I, I, I believe that the space I take up is, is cool and interesting and someone should be you know honored to be in the present. So that's what you want to do. Yes, ma'am. Quick, 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 quick. Yes. Let's get it. Switch your question yes, out. Quick. Switch Go your ahead. question out. Please.
1: Hi, my name's Ashlyn. I work mm. with All for Animals in Santa Barbara. We use therapy dogs with kids and other demographics.
2: I have a dog as well. Great. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, for those of us who are working with maybe very small or specific populations and we're trying to tell our stories, you're talking about common narratives. Is there something you look for in a character that you're writing or in a story that you're telling that differi- differentiates them from everyone else who has that common narrative?
2: Um, no, I mean the truth is, is like my experience is mine. So, however I look at characters or stories, is going to be from my perspective. Um, let's, start, let's I'm going to look at the mic in somebody else's hand before we lose it. Uh, do we have? It? Can we to do one more?
1: Uh, one let's more? see if we can squeeze one, one more, and, and then I'm going to get the last question. I'm going to take oh crap! Moderator's privilege for the last question.
2: Yes. Okay, fair
0: enough. One
1: last question, right
0: quick. Hi, Um, I'm from Chicago, Jackie Davidoff. My question is, there is clearly a lot of pain in Chicago. Where do you see that people have not shifted to new paradigms, and what do you think that foundation philanthropic communicators can do to be part of that?
2: Um, I'm gonna disagree with you. I think there's a lot of joy in Chicago. Um, I think that, you know, look, man, I think um, we are all a product of a country that was built on the backs of others. And that hasn't been, there's been no real appropriate uh, apology for that. So whatever pain that exists in folks that look like us is because we're waiting for an apology. And, um, and until that comes, we're gonna continue to live in a space in which we act as everything is okay, and it's not.
1: One last question before yeah. we let you go. You- See,
2: I could have got this young lady right here. She was what? like saying, come on, let's give it to her. Who cares, man? It's like we got what? time, I- man. <laughs> you give get- it a mic. My bad. you got you got no, sure. sure. it. It, And ask, now no, but now, now it's pressure. No, now go you got to make it great. You got to make it great. Go now ahead. You got to make it great. What one.
0: is the sto- best story that you've never told? Mm. That's a good Damn one. That's
1: a good one. 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 That's go
2: good, good, good. Don't come on my job and show me up. <laughs> Last question. Best story I've never told. I haven't told my love story. Uh, yet. Oh. Uh because it ain't done. It ain't done yet. So I hope to, you know, uh get to a place where like, you know, further, further down the line where I can like step back and tell the story of us. Um, she and I. And um and I hope that people can see themselves in us, you know, to Girls from Chicago, her from the suburbs, I mean on the south side. Um, I went to Columbia College, she went to Columbia University. It's all right. I always date someone smarter than you. Um, uh, who you can learn from. And uh, and uh, we're at the very beginning, you know? We're engaged and we have a dog and we have a place and uh, we're, we're just looking forward to building a life. Um, but like I try to tell people, it's like I can make a bunch of movies and TV shows and. Acted a bunch of things, but the truth is, at the end of the day, she is my legacy. She's the legacy. Because when I go, they're gonna do that thing in memoriam where I'm gonna get maybe four and a half seconds. It's real shit. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's gonna be that, and doing like, okay. But if she can remember me fondly, if uh, I can live up to the person which she thinks that I am, then it will all have been worth it.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Lena away Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Let's get you on a plane. I know, man. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, my, shit. oh, that's you. <laughs> Thank y'all.